This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. On the one hand, we have to address church hurt and church trauma today, um, but we also have to keep before us that vision of what the church could truly be. That way we don't give up on the church, but we can keep dreaming of a time when the world truly sees the love of God through the fellowship of believers of different ethnicities. And and then we stay committed to playing an intentional role in seeing that vision come to fruition. This is a podcast about two things, helping those with urgent needs in front of us today and improving the road so others can walk it safely in the future. Welcome to The Better Samaritan, where we are learning how to do good better, whether in everyday interactions or complex humanitarian challenges. I'm Kent Annan, co-director of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College. I'm joined by my colleague, Jamie Ayton, and our producer, Laura French. And today we're talking with Dr. Michelle Reyes, and we are thrilled to be talking with our friend and, and colleague and someone whose work we really admire a lot. So Michelle, welcome. Really glad you're with us. Oh, thanks for having me. This is a joy. So Michelle, I wanted to dive right in really on the thesis of your uh, first book and and talk about reconciliation and the way uh, small changes can lead to, to big differences in our lives, in our communities, in our world. Could you start by, by telling us the thesis of your book and then we'll have some follow-up questions on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the the passage, the the scripture text that runs through my entire book is 1 Corinthians 9 verses 19 through 23. Uh, and this is one of those passages that it, it, 1 Corinthians, you know, it's a, having grown up as a Christian, it's a passage I had read a hundred times. Uh, but Kent and Jamie, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you've come back to a, a passage of scripture and you read it and it just hits you totally different. And you're like, whoa, I never (laughs) read this verse in this life before. And that's the experience I had a few years back with 1 Corinthians 9, uh, where the Apostle Paul says, to the Jew, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. Uh, And then he goes on to talk about um, to those not under the law, meaning the Greeks and Gentiles. Uh, And then he, the, the pinnacle of that passage is, I became all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. And I started thinking, what in the world does Paul mean by this? Because (laughs) Paul himself is a Jewish man uh, and and he's saying that he needs to become like a Jew. What does it mean for a Jew to become like a Jew? Uh, and and that started this this uh, journey of pulling out commentaries and looking into biblical scholarship and learning that Paul was saying something quite provocative in these verses, namely, that not every Jewish person in the first century world was the same. Uh, you know, you think about Paul, he he was a Pharisee. He was part of the educated elite, studied under uh, Gamaliel. Uh, you know, he, he has religious power. Uh, and then you think about there's the Sadducees, and we see throughout the Gospels, the Pharisees and the Sadducees clashed on a lot of different theological issues. Uh, you had people part of the diaspora, you know, Jewish peoples part of the diaspora. So people that were mixed, uh, culturally speaking, uh, even linguistically, uh, you had the zealots that, you know, the political activists of the day, the Essenes, the people of the land. And so all of a sudden you read that verse uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 9 and you realize Paul is saying 
that as he goes throughout um, his daily life, as he goes throughout that the, the known world in the first century on these missionary journeys, whenever he interacts with another Jewish person and, and also with a Gentile or with a Greek, uh, he's going to see each of them as a unique individual and figure out how to adapt himself in language and tone and behavior to connect with that person for the sake of the gospel. And that sort of aha for me was 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 the, the basis of this book, the springboard of this book is to how to recapture a robust theology of culture and cultural identity uh, to see people the way God does, namely as unique uh, individuals, as unique cultural image bearers, and to learn those those small practical ways that uh, we can adapt how we talk, how we act, how we hold our bodies, how we behave uh, to connect with somebody of a different culture uh, for the sake of the gospel. Well, Michelle, before we go into how do we connect with others from different cultures, you know, you were talking about as you were looking at the writing of Paul there and how divided things were among some of the groups. And I had this thought, you know, as an evangelical, I can't relate to that at all. <laughs> <laughs> or an no, American. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. No right. connection to today. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, oh, who's going to read this book? Um, but I've read your book and love it. And one of the reasons is that I found it helpful um, in my own life of how do we navigate some of the fractures that we're seeing in the evangelical community at present. Mm -hmm. So curious, wondered if you could kind of start there. How can we as evangelicals apply this with one another? And then kind of from there, we'll jump into how it applies across other cultures. Yeah. Well, I, I, I want to say kind of a set a big picture thesis first, um, because I know that a lot of this conversation does situate itself within, within the bigger conversations about uh, racial reconciliation and racial healing. Um, that really is in many ways part of why we are seeking to connect across cultures. But of course, the church is a mess right now. And, and, and as you mentioned, talking about American, North American um, evangelicals, uh, there's, there's a lot of dark and ugly sins that we're having to confront right now. Um, you know, this past decade alone, we've witnessed the Church Two movement and and continue to hear stories of sexual abuse and misogyny across denominations and across cultures. This is an issue that we see both in white mega churches, but also uh, Asian churches and black churches and, and so on. And so there's a lot of racial pain ripping through congregations. Um, there's the exodus of black and brown Christians that, that are growing both silently and loudly. Uh, and, and so I, on the one hand, wherever you look, churches are splintering. Folks are feeling othered, uh, even leaving the faith because of fight over politics, theology, culture, race. Uh, and and uh, that sort of shrapnel that's exploded from all of, this, all of these things happening in the church has hit me deep and personally too. But despite all that, uh, I, I still believe the church can and should be a vehicle for reconciliation and healing. Uh, that is, after all, why the church exists. Uh, and in fact, I would say that there is nothing so sweet as the church living out its calling in the world, because we see in scripture that the church exists to advance the good news of the gospel. That's Matthew 28. And, and to edify believers, we, we see that First Thessalonians 5, 11, Jude 20. When a church is healthy, when the church is living out its biblical God-given calling, brothers and sisters bear one another's burdens. They gently restore one another. They comfort, exhort, edify, pray for, forgive one another across ethnic, cultural, socioeconomic, and political lines. When the church is healthy, 
we take on that posture of, of or, or we take on the balancing of the prophetic and the pastoral voice. We, we, we understand how to call out sins while still drawing people in to say, hey, that's not right, but I want to journey with you together to build a better, healthier biblical path. And so uh, if, if, if we were truly living into that biblical calling, men and women of all races would be wanting to treat each other with respect and equality and dignity, and the body of Christ would be growing deeper in their love for God and each other. So that is the only path forward for biblical reconciliation and healing. And so on the one hand, we have to address church hurt and church trauma today, um, but we also have to keep before us that vision of what the church could truly be. That way we don't give up on the church, but we can keep dreaming of a time when the world truly sees the love of God through the fellowship of believers of different ethnicities. And, and then we stay committed to playing an intentional role in seeing that vision come to fruition. So how, following up on that, how do, um, if it's um, issues around race, around gender, around vaccination, really like what you're, you're saying, like, so there's this path forward, you, you have this rigorous theology, um, we have divisions here. Divisions, you know, are are new and fresh for us. And otherwise, I was helping with my son's youth group last night. The divisions also go back to the very first days of the church. Like the church lives in division and debate on some of these things. Do you say how do we work towards reconciliation? And I guess specifically, how do we work through some of these ways? Like at a church, like individuals in a church level, well. You know, yeah. so there are dis disagreements on steps forward with race on should we be vaccinated or not? Should our local school mandate uh, face masks or not? Can you give us some really practical, like how, do, how does this uh, vision of reconciliation that's so vital uh, work itself out, uh, you know, in, in practical ways that we can apply? Yeah. I, <laughs> well... <laughs> I mean, some of this just comes down to like basic social skills. <laughs> like, uh, you know, I mean, so I, I'm a mom of a six and a three-year-old. We watch a lot of kids' movies. I mean, I grew up watching Bambi, and I feel like that line from Thumper the Rabbit where it's, or maybe it's his mom who says like, Bambi, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. <laughs> like, oh, I think that sometimes- That's one of my mom's, sorry to, sorry to interrupt, that's one of my mom's very favorite uh, saying. So all through our lives, we've been hearing, hearing that, okay. that quote I love from it. Bambi. Yes, and honestly- that's a good word for the church. Like we, we all feel at times so passionate about sharing our opinion and telling other people why they're wrong. And uh, we love to accuse and insult and uh, throw around the, the word heresy. Uh, but I mean, sometimes we, we need to learn to just keep our mouth shut. Like sometimes we need to just keep our opinions to ourselves. Uh, and, and, and so be, I, I think beyond that, like, um, that knee-jerk reaction. We live in this age of outrage where there's this knee-jerk reaction that if I disagree with you, I'm just going to go and, 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 and publicly burn you. Uh, there's, there's, we've lost that, uh, even that biblical um, precedent of, 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 sorry, my, <laughs> my daughter is, no, no is problem. here. Give me your baby. I'll fix it. Well, Kent, you know, as Michelle was sharing there, one of the things that stood out to me was that it sounds like in many things, or excuse me, many times, I think a lot of evangelicals struggle with finding that 
that line between being prophetic and just being noisy and angry toward one another. Yeah, no, you're right. I think that's uh, social media and everything seems to have exacerbated it. But when do you stand up and fight for what you believe or what you think is important versus, you know, going along with something that you might not think is the best idea, but it's not essential to the faith. It does seem like more than ever that, that, uh, that isn't totally clear what we do. It doesn't seem like we've, we've, we're in the balance at the moment of how to navigate those things. Something more specifically, my colleague, Ray Chang, president of the ACC, he gave a talk at CPT recently in which he asked the question, can people who experience racial trauma outside of your church find healing inside your church? And I thought that's a provocative question to be asking right now because there's a lot of armchair critics and it's easy to call out the sins of the church right now without actively and intentionally working to pave a better path in their own lives. We've had a wide influx specifically of Asian Americans join our church, largely because in the aftermath of March 16th, 2021, uh, their pastors and churches said nothing about the murder of six Asian women, or or they were told that they were just making up stories about anti-Asian racism related to the pandemic, or or some were called snowflakes. And so uh, the Sunday after March 16th, our church completely redid our Sunday service, and we had an entire morning of just lament. Um, My husband Aaron prepared a short homily on biblical lament, and we spent a long time in prayer and confession. And at at one point, I think it was near the end of the service, we all stood in a circle. Granted, we're a small church of about, uh, at that time, about 50, uh, holding hands, crying and praying together. And that's what churches need to do in the midst of tragedies, whether it's racial, natural, (laughs) or otherwise. Uh, We have to stop what we're doing. We have to tend to our congregation, rethink the liturgy, the sermon, the tone of our Sunday morning. Uh, We have to give special attention to the tragedy that's now ripping through our community. We have to speak to our people, acknowledge their pain, cry with them, and then look to scripture and point to Christ, because that's what intentional practices of healing should look like in the church. Jumping um, from church to another issue, we were talking briefly before the podcast started, and you're down closer to the border than we are. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about your involvement with the border and then thinking about storytelling and some of how the the stories get told around these issues of reconciling. Uh, We do a lot of work with refugees and migration issues at HDI. Could you say something about, you know, what does it look like to center white voices in those narratives versus centering, um, you know, other voices or the voices of migrants who are coming across the border or or not able to come across the border? Uh, We'd love for you to explain like what are the dynamics like what are the different ways that those stories can tell and why is it important for how those stories are told yeah that's such an important question well i'll i'll say even just first on a personal level i'm a second generation immigrant so my mother who's 100 percent ethnically indian uh is a first gen immigrant to this country she came in the 70s uh and and my husband Aaron, a second-generation Mexican immigrant, uh, and it was his grandparents that came uh, from northern Mexico to to live in uh, El Paso. And so 
the stories of, of immigrants is very personal to us. In many ways, that is what fuels our passion of caring for fellow immigrants uh, and, 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 and is what has us tuned, I think, to, to be more sensitive to what the Bible has to say about immigrants because it is so personal to us. Um, but, you know, something that, that, uh, that, that we really believe in is narrative justice. Narrative justice simply means um, taking away the microphone from the dominant voice uh, the, the voice that's dictating the, the the dominant narrative and giving the microphone to the voices at the margins and letting them share their own stories because we believe that everyone has a God-given right to share their own story with their own voice. And so th- that should be applied across the board to any issue, uh, but certainly to immigration is, is for us to not just be li- listening to political pundits and, 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 and uh, politicians about um, their sort of pontification about immigration laws and reform, but actually be going to the immigrants themselves, the ones that are um, coming from, from all over the world to, to our border seeking aid. And, and so, uh, you know, we in East Austin, we are a predominantly immigrant or maybe about 60% immigrant church um, some documented, some undocumented. Uh, we're a bilingual church, English and Spanish, because a lot of our, our, our folks, predominantly the older ones, only speak Spanish. Um, but we, we, have, we have a guy who, who came from Nigeria who took a boat to Brazil and then like on his own navigated through the jungles of Brazil. He like contracted this virus in his hand that was starting to like eat his hand from the inside. He got somehow he made it to the Mexico border. Uh, and was in this detention center for a long time without any phys- uh, medical help. So his hand is all, um, you know, mangled up. But like he came to America because he's he's a, a mathematician <laughs> by trade, and he wants to come and and teach math in America. And 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 uh, we had a conference. Uh, we put on regular conferences, seminars, workshops as a church uh, here in Austin about immigration, and we always make it a point. That it's the that it's immigrants leading those conferences, sharing their stories. You know, we're just the organizers, but we're we're like here, listen to you know, we can we can galvanize, collect the people to come sit in the seats and listen to these immigrant stories. And I remember him just saying to this audience of of, of Austinites, I love America. I I. I, I love being here and I want to help make this country even better than it already is, you know, and you could just see the tears in his eyes because he's internalized so much of that pain of that, that political conversation that all immigrants are criminals or um, they're coming to take away our jobs or, or, or fill in the blank. We have another couple in our church from Guatemala. They're, they're religious, um, you know, asylum seekers. Uh, they fled religious persecution uh, in Guatemala. The husband is a doctor. By trade, I mean these are incredibly smart people they, and, and affluent in their country, and they come and they have to be, um, you know, doing manual labor and just all of the the pain that they've shouldered for how people view them, because they're immigrants. You know, they don't see them as doctors and um, well trained people. They see them as as threats. And so I think that's my long way of saying um, we have to be living in relationship. With immigrants, we need to know relationship or immigrants breaking bread at our tables with immigrants and hearing their voices and then allowing their real and personal stories dictate how we 
approach the issue of, of say, immigration reform or whatnot? Very powerful, Michelle, and to hear how what a wonderful job your church has been able to do to help amplify voices of those that might not be heard otherwise. You know, one of the ways I first came across the work that you do was by your affiliation with the Asian American Christian Collaborative, which makes me again think of this uh, hearing similar themes of bringing people together, amplifying voices, addressing um, you know topics that aren't front and center uh, with the major conversations that are often happening across the U.S. Help us uh, understand a little bit more about the work you've been doing there. Yeah, so the Asian American Christian Collaborative was uh, was born out of the anti-Asian racism growing uh, due to the pandemic. So we, Ray, Raymond Chang and myself uh, and, and a team of drafters, we, we put together a statement on anti-Asian racism in the time of COVID-19. And that was published March of last year in 2020. And the reason why we even drafted that statement is because we were talking with uh, Asian Americans and Asian American Christians from around the country who just felt lost. Uh, You know, we were experiencing this double threat. You know, like every other American in, in this country, we were experiencing the fear and the terror of the coronavirus and, and you know, what's going to happen when this hits American shores and are we safe? Um, and, and at the same time, we were experiencing that that threat to being viewed as the the foreign other uh, and even the foreign terror uh, and, and, and navigating that and, and having so many phone calls and emails from, from friends who were saying, hey, my kid was just chased down the street with by other kids from his school shouting coronavirus or go back home. Um, I had people shout at me saying, go back home. And I'm like, I, I mean, it's just this ridiculous. I'm like, I grew up in Minnesota, you know, um, and, and Raymond had, had people cough on him. Others had people spit on them. And then, of course, as you know, you know there was a woman in California who had acid thrown on her face and so much worse. And, and these Asian American Christians were going into their churches and saying, hey, this is happening to me, to my community, to the national Asian American community, and just being dismissed, um, being called uh, snowflakes, as I mentioned earlier, uh, and just totally um, hurt by that sort of treatment from within the church. And so we wrote this statement uh, to to encourage and equip the church to call out anti-Asian racism and and mapped out practical ways in which to do that, uh, whether it's from the pulpit or, or in uh, spiritual faith formation and discipleship. Uh, and within about a month, it had garnered over 10,000 signatures uh, from churches, uh, organizations, uh, Ivy League school presidents, and more. Uh, and it really began helping shape and change the conversation, which is what we wanted it to do. Uh, at, at AACC, we want to uh, you know, seek to stand for Asian lives and dignity, and, and we want to help change the conversation when it comes to the Asian American community and to help specifically the, the church better learn how to care for its Asian American congregants and and surrounding community, uh, what this looks like for discipleship, spiritual formation, for making their churches welcoming to Asian Americans uh, and more. And so um, over the past year and a half, uh, we've we we had a march last year in Chicago after the the murder of George Floyd, which was in many ways a historic march because there was somewhere between one to two thousand uh, African Americans and Asian Americans that marched together 
from Chinatown to uh, Charlie Date's church, Progressive Church, um, to, to in support and solidarity with one another. Uh, in, in the in the wake of the March 16th Atlanta massacre, uh, we connected with churches in 14 different cities to help organize 14 different prayer rallies uh, on Palm Sunday, which was really, I think, a watershed moment for the Asian American Christian community to to really give public national space to grieve and lament. Uh, all that had been happening to them over the past two years and, 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 and how it came to a head with this, this murder uh, and really helping encourage Asian Americans, hey, we need to, we, we need to begin uh, pursuing justice more actively. Like we, our voices matter, uh, our lives matter, uh, and, and these are issues that we need to, to delve in deeper with. And so, um, you know, I think since March, we've seen Asian American Christians becoming more active, more bold in their faith, really embracing a more holistic understanding of the gospel and what it means to follow Christ holistically. Uh, and that's a lot of what we're hoping to continue to do in our work with AACC. We've been so grateful for your leadership and, and watching you do that, along with our great Wheaton College colleague, um, Ray Chang. Um, and actually, it just reminded me that when you all um, wrote as a group of American, Asian American leaders wrote in March about a uh, response to those tragic shootings and on our Better Samaritan blog. And I think of all the, uh, well, I actually know of all the posts that we have had over the past year since we launched that blog um, that has the most traffic of any, which I think just oh, wow. shows the importance of, of your voice and your leadership. And like we were talking about, narrative earlier um so you're leading and then you're you're helping to to make people aware but also helping us to tell the right stories together about the need for reconciliation and um kind of within your community as you lead and also in other communities that, that need to be more sensitive to racism and other challenges that people are facing amen i'll have to say thanks <laughs> we really, really are grateful <laughs> yeah we're really grateful for your your leadership that you're doing there and i wanted to shift to what we we do in each podcast towards the end um, is our what we call our final five quick questions, uh, just to get to know you a little bit better and have some ways for you to share with with us and our listeners some things that are are helping you and influencing you at the moment. So, first question is: Is there a, a book that you're reading right now that you're really enjoying that you could tell us about and recommend? Mm, yeah, well. So the book that I'm currently reading is is entitled Bleeding Out. Uh, my husband and I are actually reading it together, and and some light reading. I know. And the reason why we're reading it is because gun violence is another major uh, issue in our community, and particularly among young boys. We've had uh, a series of, of devastating shootings. Um, by particularly African and Latino uh, men in their their early twenties, eighteen, nineteen year old uh, men, and uh, you know we're still trying to figure out how they're getting access to illegal guns. Um, sometimes girlfriends buy them. Sometimes they get access through uh, gangs or, or, or cartels. Um, but you know you have these these boys, uh, many of whom don't have have father figures or, or you know are in very un in unstable housing conditions uh, and you know they're at a party and a fight breaks out and all of a sudden there's a gun, someone's shot, someone's dead. Um, and so in the last six months, we've, we've buried four, four teenagers um, connected to our church, connected to our mm. local community, mm. boys that um, 
you know, young adult men in our church have, have mentored boys that, that Aaron has baptized. Um, I mean, just, just devastating. And so we're trying to figure out how can we as a church, how can Aaron and I as community leaders uh, speak into and, and break this cycle of gun violence that's, that's plaguing um, our, our community and, 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 and losing the lives of, of, of precious young, young men. So I, I know that's not a <laughs> light reading, but, uh, but bleeding out um, the devastating consequences of urban violence and a bold new plan for peace in the streets by Thomas Apt is um, for anybody else who's, who's wrestling with that is a, is a great book to start with. Thanks for sharing that. Very sorry to hear about those those men in your in the overall community and then even within your church community. Oh yeah, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. What's a book that you've given away more than others over the years? <laughs> well, that's a funny question to ask because I just came out with my first book this year, and so I, I feel like this year probably the book I've given out the most <laughs> is my my own becoming all things, but. Um, I, so long story short, I, you know, I began my professional journey as a German professor. Um, you know, my PhD is in 18th century German literature, and I, I used to teach uh, folklore, uh, fantasy, mythology uh, at the college level. Um, I taught both at UIC and uh, Moody Bible Institute in downtown Chicago, as well as uh, a small liberal arts school here in, in Austin before turning to full-time vocational ministry. All that to say, um, I have a soft spot for folklore and fantasy. That, I think, will always be sort of my first love literary analysis and was my first love. Um, I have a good friend. His name is Matt Michelatis, and he has this um, fantasy series with Tyndale called The, the Sunlit Lands. Uh, and the three books are The Crescent Stone, The Heartwood Crown, and The Story King. And this is, I think it was Kirkus Review that, that described his series as, as like Narnia with, with snark. <laughs> uh, and and uh, it's, it's a wonderful series. I highly recommend it for both young adults, but also people in their 20s and 30s, uh, because it's a fascinating exploration of, of a, a white girl, an African-American boy, an Asian boy, and a Syrian refugee who go into this other, you know, fantastical world. And they're trying to make sense of what racial justice looks like, and even cross-cultural relationships, what that looks like in this fantasy world. And it gives them so much reflection for, for what that should look like in their own world back home. Um, great, great series, highly recommended. So I've, I've given that out to a lot of folks and I've, I've bought a good number as Christmas presents for, for people this December. Thanks. Uh, I may add that to my list for my, uh, for my son, for my nice. son's, uh, for Christmas. Nice. Um, third question is, uh, is there an app or productivity method or travel product, something that you're using right now that, uh, that could be big or small that you're finding really useful that would be might some of us might like to know about? Oh, man, I don't know if this answers your question, but I feel a little bit like the modern day writer. Maybe it's because I'm a mom with young kids. I write all my articles these days on my notes app. <laughs> and it's it's something I started doing well after my first was born and, and, you know, breastfeeding or just rocking him in the dark, you know, when he's trying to go to sleep. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to hit all my projects for, for articles. And so I started learning how to type with one hand on my notes app. And uh, since then, I've probably written the majority of my articles, even book chapters on my notes app. So that 
is probably my my most uh, used app after, say, my phone app. Very productive. <laughs> and multitasking. Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, when you're a parent, <laughs> that's just life. <laughs> well, what's maybe one highlight of something that you've been listening or watching that you've really enjoyed recently? Oh, man. The Mars Hill podcast or the rise and fall of Mars Hill with uh, with CT. That has been just such a provocative podcast. And even for Aaron and I as church planters, just kind of thinking through um, what sort of continued boundaries and safeguards do we keep as a church so that we never put profit over people, um, you know, even just continuing to think through what does this mean for for, for what sort of leaders we're looking for to hire. <laughs> and uh, I mean, just so much that that podcast has has given us so much to think about, to chew on, incredibly provocative, um, as well as just a really damning critique about how the evangelical church has, has uh, prioritized doctrine over behavior or even disassociated doctrine from behavior within the church. Um, so I, if, if you have, if, if, people listening in haven't listened to it, I highly recommend it. And then final question, what do you do to renew your body and mind with the demands of your work and leadership? Um, being a parent, being a writer, how do you renew your body and mind? Yeah. Um, I mean, some of it's just the basics is making sure I'm getting at least seven hours of sleep a night. Um, I've, I've learned about myself now in my 30s that if I get less than seven hours of sleep, <laughs> I, I don't function very well. So <laughs> making sure that I get that, um, that I'm eating well and, and spending time every day in God's, God's word. Um, those have always been sort of my, uh, my three. <laughs> so when, I, I, when I'm sticking to that, even in the midst of a crisis, a racial tragedy, that crazy winter storm that rolled through Austin back in February, um, you know, good sleep and, 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 and staying in God's word has always, it's like that Psalm 119, like your word preserves my life. And that's been so true um, in my own life. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for being with us. And before we go, just curious if there was anything else you wanted to share. And I just have to tell you, I'm now fighting myself internally about asking if we should have you respond now in German, knowing <laughs> what your PhD is in. But we, we, I won't do that. Ich freue mich darüber. Yeah, I, I, I'm grateful for this conversation. I'm grateful for the vision of, of this podcast, which is to do good better. Uh, and, 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 you know, I think um, this is just a part of a longer conversation, so I'll, I'll, I'll try to make it brief. But, you know, when it comes to issues of, of race, uh, culture, uh, even other subjects that are just controversial topics that are, that are plaguing our the, the, the evangelical church today is, is we need a, a, a more robust understanding of the gospel. Uh, and, and that's something I've written about for CT as well as on the Better Samaritan uh, website. But, you know, we have this really anemic view of the gospel um, that's that's become limited to nothing more than a simple set of doctrines. And, uh, you know, anybody who, who then talks about caring for the poor and the vulnerable and the hurting, you know, sounds like a heretic. <laughs> uh, but God has always intended for us, his people, to be working to repair and rebuild what is broken in our world so that all peoples may flourish. Uh, and I just, I, I, I want to say just a quick word because I know there's so much buzz about 
deconstruction and decolonizing. And I, I won't get into all of that, but I do want to say that because of my German background, um, and I began studying uh, the, the German reformers and the Reformation early in college, um, it was actually through reading the life of Martin Luther and his wife, Katharina von Bora, that I was first introduced to uh, biblically rooted social justice, so to speak. And, uh, you know, I've lived in Germany. I did my doctoral research in Germany. Um, my husband and I have, have been to Wittenberg and seen Luther's house. And um, I don't, I've never seen a person's home with a greater dinner table before. It's huge. Uh, and, and, you know, there's all these stories of Luther and Katharina having like 50 people off the streets of Wittenberg for dinner. Um, and they cared for widows and orphans that were in ways that were countercultural in the 16th century, right? And, and, and their living out the gospel through social action made such an impression on me at a young age. Uh, and even John Calvin, you know, I, I feel like those staunch Calvinists out there, they, they either overlook or they miss how much Calvin spoke about justice. Uh, and I love how he says in his commentary on the Psalms that the whole word, the whole world is a theater for the display of divine goodness, wisdom, justice, and power, but the church is the orchestra, as it were. Uh, and so what, what I learned from the reformers is that our God is a God of justice, and we are his instruments, his hands and feet to live that out in the world. So um, I think about the people we serve on the streets of Austin, immigrants, uh, those experiencing homelessness, people that are just in need of basic human necessities, food, shelter, protection. Uh, you know, the biggest prayer in our community is for food and, and protection from gangs and cartels. And the more we build relationships with the hurting and we eat together and we live life together, that's how the, the people in our community see the gospel in us. Caring for real physical needs is what helps them see the love of God in us. And it's been through pursuing justice for our neighbors, whether that's through immigration reform or seeking to correct local policies that hurt the homeless or appealing to our governor to overturn convictions on death row, that people in East Austin have come to faith. And they've told us over and again, wow, you you really love people. Like, I, I want what you have. And so, um, I, you know, I, I'm very passionate about going back to the scriptures and growing in a more robust understanding of what the gospel actually is, um, because our right thinking will lead to right behavior. At least that's the hope, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, thank you, Michelle. What a great, great way to end. And so appreciate your commitment to the gospel, to your commitment to stepping into hard topics, uh, but with humility and with hope. Uh, and with grace, and you've modeled that throughout the conversation that goes throughout your book, Becoming All Things, How Small Changes Lead to Lasting Changes Across Cultures. So thank you for your work and look forward to continuing to work with you in the days ahead. Likewise, likewise. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for this conversation with Michelle. I really appreciate how she steps into uh, hard, important topics, um, does so in her church, uh, in her writing and is thinking about reconciliation. So there, I think there's really humility. It even comes through in her title of her book and the passage from Paul that she talked about. Um, and then it's really practical and thinking, you know, how do we make a difference? How do we keep on seeking reconciliation in Christ and seeking reconciliation with others? So such an important part of the Christian life and an important part of uh, seeking to do good better. 
Thanks for listening to the Better Samaritan podcast. You can find links to the things we mentioned during this episode in the show notes. And special thanks to the brilliance for this fantastic music theme. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe. You can also follow the Humanitarian Disaster Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'll see you next week as we continue learning to do good better.